Continuing our discussion of Vedanta Sutra and explained a little bit about the nature of the sutras and their structure and so forth last night. It may be worthwhile to say a little bit more, especially maybe to get a, some sense of the value of such an undertaking, discussing such an old cryptic text. So where does it does it have a place in the world? And indeed, it does. It's quite a significant um, text in, just historically speaking, in terms of the modern and ancient world. It is the first known attempt to develop a systematic theology out of a body of revelation. The Upanishads, of course, are an enormous body of revealed literature. We are in a very Eurocentric world, and so sometimes maybe that um, causes this uh, point to be lost. And indeed, the tradition then started in the world by Vyas to, again, develop a systematic theology out of, a, out of revelation, which is you know something that you have to make some sense out of to bring into this world. That tradition started by him, of course, has then been the same task, attempt, effort has been made in all uh, the great uh, religious traditions. Not that they followed, he did it, so we're going to do it, but he came first historically, and what he's done, what the Indian sages have done, this is what other religious traditions have done, over the years, um, we are more familiar maybe with a Western attempt at this, maybe culminating in the Catholic, you know, scholasticism and uh, whatnot. So it's not irrelevant. It's an important body of significant body. For that matter, dwarfs, in my humble estimation, the Western, if you will, Mid-Eastern, uh, as I might call it, revelation which is basically the, what, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Jesus, the Christ, and so forth. This is the event in Western society that in, with regard to religion, an insight that is said to come from beyond, to use our own terminology, the limits of the mind and the senses and so forth. But the Indian body of revelation is vast in comparison. And for that matter, the Christ-like figures are many and continuing on, for that matter, for a longer period of time. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, for that matter, was only 500 years ago, an extraordinary uh, religious figure embodying, if you will, the revelation. So, the sutras are important, or what Vyas attempted to do is important. It's, what, it's the task that uh, is before any person who comes to the conclusion that the temporal cannot, uh, will not suffice. Uh, the sense of wanting an enduring experience in life is said to be, in our terminologies, 
a, uh, a sense that comes from an intellect that's influenced by sattva. Uh, that's the sattvic kind of intelligence. I can't, in a, in a nutshell, I cannot be satisfied in relation to things that don't endure. This sense. Now, of course, how we come to that sense and whatnot that we discussed to some extent last night, that's to some extent the topic of the first aphorism of Vedanta Sutra. And again, the sutras are made up of, what, 550, these very terse statements. They're uh, sutras, threads, or maybe stitches that sew together the, the body of, of revelation. But they're a little difficult to, uh, to understand. I mean, they're very, very terse. They're, they're missing verbs. They're missing subjects in some cases. They're more or less like notations on the part of Vyas, the background for which is something committed to memory and experience that words can't quite do justice to. And it would seem odd, perhaps, from a, or it does seem odd from a Western point of view to write something, take a, an exercise in, in writing about such an important subject and do it in such a terse way. But terse as time, for one thing, as time goes on and persons are less acquainted with the body of literature of, of revelation that he was concerned with, you know, you find this commentary tradition coming quite a bit later than Vyas. And also, there may be justification for the terseness of it, or terseness of the best, but the, the bare bones, so to speak, of the sutras. There may be some justification for it in the very Hindu thought that more than written word, sound does greater justice to the nature of reality. The sounds correspond with reality, and putting it in words is a breakdown. Anyway, at any rate, these sutras are, in and of themselves are a little difficult to understand. There, there are 550 of them. They're, the Brahma Sutras of Vyasa are divided into four chapters. Sanskrit term for that is adhyayas. And then there are four padas, or sections, within each adhyaya. Again, the first two deal with Sambandha, from the vantage point of Bhagavatam, and the third one with Abhideya, and the fourth one with Prayojan, Tattva. Again, you have this then tradition of commentary to the sutra that comes later, and you have principal commentators, Shankar, Ramanuja, Madhva, Nimbarka, and of course, our Baldevidyabhushan, and um, also, I believe, the um, contemporary of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Balabhacharya, also wrote a commentary. And there are more ancient commentaries or commentators that are referred to there may have any, even been, going back a bit, uh, other attempts to develop a systematic theology out of Revelation, but Vyasa's is the only one that's prevailed, so we don't really know of any other one. And there are ancient commentaries, that earlier commentaries that predate Shankar's, but I don't think they're readily uh, if it, uh, available at all. Hmm? And... Um, and so you have these commentaries, the principal ones of which I've mentioned, and the majority of them are, of course, Vaishnava commentaries, Ramanuja's commentary, Madhva's commentary, Balava's commentary, Nimbarka's commentary. These represent the schools of Dvaita, in the case of Madhva, and Ramanuja, Vishishta Dvaita, and Nimbarka, uh, Dvaita Dvaita, or Beda Beda, it's sometimes called, and then uh, 
Balabas is a Sudha Dvaita. Of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has no commentary, but doesn't mean he doesn't have anything to say. He turns us to, as we're learning Srimad Bhagavatam, and he, his metaphysic, his meta-narrative, his theology, his uh, philosophy is called, has been called by Sanatana Goswami and then by Jiva Goswami. Sanatana Goswami in Brihat Bhagavatamrita and Jiva Goswami he develops it more the technical term and and all in uh, and explains it in uh, more directly in his um, Satsandarbha. It's called Achintya Veda Veda. A little different than Nimbarka's Veda Veda, which says sometimes the absolute is bade, sometimes obeyed. Mahaprabhu is saying bade and obeyed at the same time, which defies logic and is therefore achintya. Hmm. Um, so our understanding then of these sutras historically is coming largely through these different commentators who've made huge treaties out of the uh, treatises out of the out of the sutras. Very extensive and very dense and pretty dry uh, philosophy, quite heady. And this is a tradition, the sutras themselves and the commentaries that uh, I think even the, the scholars will say predates Christ. I think the earliest dating of the sutras is something like 500 BC. So there was a rich tradition of thinkers and experiencers. And... Um, I think the world would do good, you know, to give a little credence to that, as if they did as much uh, as it's done even in lip service to the Bible. The world would be benefited from it. So we're doing something important here. And again, when we come to the commentary, commentaries on these sutras, we get some way in our modern time to try to understand it through these luminaries who more or less were scholars and they were of such a spiritual caliber, character, that it was assumed that they kind of knew what Vyas was talking about when he wrote a particular sutra. So they've posited in their commentaries a vishayavakya, or a principal subject, citing a Upanishadic statement they made. They actually divided the sutras within each pada of each adhyaya, within each section of each chapter, into adhikarans or topics. And the sutras, as their commentaries show, follow logically from one to the other to thoroughly discuss a particular topic, and then they go on to another topic. Now, the problem, of course, with the commentary tradition is that, well, they see the commentators sometimes different topics, Radhikaran, so they posit a different Vishayavakya, or principal statement of the Upanishads that Vyasa is talking about when he makes his notation in the Sutra. And after, of course, then the system is that after they have posited the Vishaya, the subject, Upanishad says this, then they put forward a doubt, some shy, the commentators, well, I don't know about that. Hmm? For example, last night we discussed Atato Brahma Jignasu. So the question will come in relation to the, to the second aphorism, the second sutra today. Well, if now is the time, therefore, to inquire about Brahman, well, what is Brahman? Some statements seem to say that the jiva is Brahman. 
So the doubt may come. They may say Brahman is the absolute. So they say, well, I think, what am I? maybe the jiva is. And then, the, then after the samshai, the doubt is presented, then a, an opposing argument, it's called the purvapaksha, which will strengthen the doubt, comes forward and says, yeah, is Brahman, for example, is the jiva. And according to this statement of the Upanishads. And then the next sutra will come as the siddhanta, defeating the the doubt and the purvapaksha, the following opponent. Here is the siddhanta. And then in the commentary on the next sutra, which answers the previous one, unless it's a new adhikaran, a new topic, the commentary will then resolve the apparent contradiction. Well, this guy said the jiva is Brahman. Here's what the Upanishads say. And he'll resolve it by showing the context and what it's mean and citing other texts and so forth. So you can see um, that they understood Vyasa's commentary, Vyasa Sutras in a particular way, from their commentaries. It's evident that they considered it to be an attempt to make a concordance of all the diverse statements in the scripture and develop a systematic worldview, theology. And so the problem being, of course, in the, in the tradition of the commentaries is what? It's like I said, well, they have, they're very highly qualified people. You know, there's Shankar and Ramanujan, but they have slightly different ideas. What the topic might be, what the, you know, they're filling in the words for Vyas. Now, it's not as diverse as it might sound. I mean, it's fairly consistent. For example, all the commentators agree that with regard to the, the first uh, topic, which tells what the book's about, now the time to inquire about Brahman. They all agree what Brahman is, the absolute. Of course, they may vary and say that the jiva is also Brahman and so on. But there's a fair amount of consistency. It, it's, so they're, they're, they are all kind of drawing from the, from the same well. Some seem to be going a little deeper into the well and getting colder water or something. Or, and some are more on the surface. And um, of all of them, it's quite apparent from an objective study of the sutras and of the commentaries that Shankar's commentary on it is less of a commentary on the sutras and more of his own ideas, which he uses the sutras to give support to. And you've got, again, in the principal commentaries, all these four, four or five Vaishnav sects, all in agreement, in opposed to Shankar's idea and so forth, which is kind of does away with God. I mean, when you look at the first two statements of the sutras themselves, which are pretty important. Here they're introducing what the book's about. It's about an inquiry into Brahman. And the next sutra, which we're going to get to tonight, talks about then what is the nature of Brahman. The first sutra says, Atato Brahma Jagnasu. So it says, now is the time, therefore, to inquire about Brahman. So it's fairly evident from the very onset that, well, there's got to be an inquirer and there's got to be Brahman. So there's some kind of difference, it appears. And Vyasa doesn't go anywhere on to qualify that in such a, well, I really mean this. That's what, of course, Shankar does. He really means this. That's why in the language of Krishna Das Kaviraj, in the Banaris Lila, Varanasi Lila, I'm not sure if it's in the seventh chapter or it's in this um, 25th chapter that we're reading where the story is told twice, the Lila is related twice, slightly differently, with slightly different details. In one of those, Mahaprabhu, I believe, says through the pen of Krishnas, what? He's debating with the Acharya, the Shankars, Prakasananda, who's following the Advaitin line, Vyas Branta. It means Shankar 
You want to talk about him? His commentary says this, Vyasa is crazy. That's pretty strong language from Krishnadas, Vyas Branta. That's what I think when I hear his commentary. That's what it makes me think of. He's putting aside what Vyasa is saying and inserting his own idea, which is basically this two tiers of Brahman, and it's a very confusing thing that is not anywhere found, anywhere in the sutras. And we'll come to that in the first chapter if we get that far. But it comes out a little bit right here in the first and the second aphorism. First being, now is the time to inquire about Brahman, which means there's an inquirer and there's Brahman. The second one is Janmadiyasyataha. It defines Brahman in a significant way. It says, Brahman is that from which Janma and Adi, Asya, Yataha. Janma means birth or manifestation. Adi means etc. So, manifestation, sustenance, and annihilation of the world. That from whom the world, in terms of its manifestation, its sustenance, and its annihilation, or all that it involves, comes from. So it's making out for a world and its source. And so again, it's fairly obvious that his theology from the onset includes at least some kind of difference. Like in our school, it's an Advaigyan Tattva, the Absolute. But it's described how. How is the Advaigyan Tattva, which is the Absolute Truth of the Bhagavatam, described? Yeah, it's pretty confusing. It's non-dual consciousness, known as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagwan. So again, it's a one in difference, but there is, simultaneously, there is a difference that's factored in there. Vishishta Dvaita, that's an Dvaita with, well, it's qualified, and the qualification to some difference is factored in. It's all the Shuddha Dvaita of Balabhacharya. Some difference is factored in there for Bhagwan, you know, to exist, and Leela, and the devotee, and so forth. So... At any rate, this is the, uh, the tradition, and, um, and there are some principal commentaries. And along comes Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in modern times, comparatively. What is the time of Madhva and the time of Ramanuja and Shankar's? Quite a bit long time. I don't know how long it is. Maybe over a thousand years, Madhva, and earlier than that, Ramanuja. Earlier than that, Shankar. That's getting to be a long time. 500 years is not too close, but it sounds a lot closer than a thousand and, of course, there's a prominent uh, representation of Mahaprabhu's idea in the modern world today, which is really significant. That's, of course, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur, Bhakti Vinod Paribar, and the extraordinary campaign of our uh, Guru Maharaj, J.C. Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada. It's very, very significant. I mean, I was speaking about the other night how, how what a hold Advaita Vedanta has had on the Western world. They just have the door locked and shut. This is be all. This is Vedanta. Advaita is Vedanta, and you can see from what we're talking about that's such a such a stretch. There are so many forms of Advaita, and the other forms all tend to have something much in agreement with one another. And Shankar is the lone renegade. His philosophy is interesting. He's a good philosopher, a creative thinker, and so forth. But how much it represents. The tradition of revelation, well, that's another thing. And this is the whole idea of the Indian schools, and it doesn't seem to be too much of a different idea that we have in the West, that revelation is where it all really comes from. It comes from up to down. That's how we come to know about God. So if, we, if we're not in, or the absolute, or that which is beyond our 
perception, sensual, mental, and intellectual grasp. So if that's how it comes down, then we have to be faithful to that. We, we have to use reasoning. Obviously, these Acharyas who have written these commentaries are extraordinarily uh, bright persons, and that logic is fully, and intelligence fully um, uh, exercised in, in writing these commentaries. But it's, a, it's, again, what we call Shastra-yukti. We've discussed this before. It's a use of reasoning that seeks to further the argument of revelation, and it lays stress on the necessity of revelation for knowing, a super logical, you know, translogical way of arriving at, at comprehensive knowledge. I mean, even Shankar doesn't go so far as to say that it, you can go without that, but he's not really very chaste to the, uh, to the text, although, as I say, a very creative and interesting philosopher. Hmm? So, anyway, we come to the more modern times, to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his simple approach to the, the sutras, which is this long heritage, you know, tradition in India of how you come to understand God, how you understand your place in the world, and so forth. Pretty important topics. And from his vantage point, how does he deal with it? He's a much later figure in the commentarial line or whatever. I mean, the last commentary of, say, maybe Madhva is, is quite a ways back. He's coming in the Madhva line, but we know that he's uh, bringing new light in the Madhva line. We, we see him as the Krishna who enlightened Brahma, come again in his own Sampradaya as Goranga to shed new light on what it was that he told Brahma, who after all did get confused a couple of times. Coming at a much later date, and really in kind of in modern times, I, I was speaking about Prabhupada and the Gaudiya Sampradaya and all, and it's really... Uh, it's an amazing accomplishment of Prabhupada with his emphasis on Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam and Mayavad is not uh, a valid representation of, of revelation, which he emphasized over and over and over and over again. I mean, he would find opportunities that just weren't there almost in his commentary on text to, to go after that point. So he was very focused really, on these two points. It's not Mayavad, you're not God, and Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. And again, as I said before, well, you need both these things. You need to get rid of Mayavad to be a devotee at all. And to be a Braj Bhakta, you have to know Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Aham Sarvasya Prabhu Mata Sarvam Prabhartate. That's what the Gita says. Knowing me, Krishna says, to be everything. Buddha Bhava Samanvita. Then you get the kind of... And you know where to, to repose all of the giving capacity that you have in the complete taker. This is the whole idea of the Braj Bhakti. So he emphasized these points, and he was very effective in what he wanted to do. If you want to look at the, at the movement of Prabhupada and think, well, gee, I guess, how well did he go? You have to really look at a very broad picture, not at some of the fanatical disciples that are left behind that, that we are haunted by, their misrepresentation of Prabhupada. But here are, for example, these are, this is a major building block to put in place if you want to build a house of, of bhakti, big enough, as it was said about him, that the whole world can live in. You've got to shed light on the uh, shallowness and the lack of uh, chastity to revealed knowledge of Advaita Vedanta. And I can tell you, there is no one person and that person, of course, means the people that are connected with him, also whom he influenced, 
who has done more to shed light on the fact that Advaita Vedanta does not have the, the lock and key and the last word and the monopoly on this tradition of revelation known as Vedanta. Indeed, he's really a minor figure who isn't even chased to the tradition, and here are all these others, of course, Ramanuja, Madhavan, and Barka. You can find in any academy now in this country and probably in Europe where there's a study of Eastern philosophy and Hinduism and so forth, there's going to be mention of Ramanuja. There's going to be mentioning even of Madhva or the Chaitanya school or the fact that Advaita Vedanta just isn't the be-all and end-all of Vedanta. This is a huge accomplishment. I mean, he had the... He had the whole thing, the door locked on it. You come Vivekananda coming to America, it's called the Vedanta Society. It's like, that's it, that's Vedanta. Whatever they teach at Vivekananda's place. Ramakrishna is a mystic of sorts, a kind of a tantric. And Vivekananda, his follower, turned him into a Vedantist and then started the Vedanta Society in America. And there it is. You want to know Vedanta, you go there. But it's not like that anymore. People don't think like that. Especially in the academy, you know, in the, in the uh, academic world, which is important because that's where people get educated. And you can find it more and more. You can find dissertations all the time on this kind of topic. So this is a huge contribution of uh, Prabhupada, a contribution of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. You know, Thakur Bhakti Vinod predicted in his revealed text, Navadvipdha Mahatmya, I believe, that all these sampradayas, Vaishnava sampradayas, would come together under the banner of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. You can find in, in Mayapur, Sridham Mayapur, where Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur has his principal mata, maybe it's called the Chaitanya Mata, I think. There's an altar where he has um, all the deities of Ramanuja, Madhva, Nimbarka, Vishnu Swami, you know, following this spirit of Bhakti Vinod and the spirit of, of Jiva Goswami who honors for example, Ramanuja in Tattva Sandarbha. The Vridhacharjas, the previous older wise and uh, adepts, um, Sridhar Swami of the um, Vishnu Swami Sampradaya and Ramanuja and, and Madhva, he honors them all there. We're not arguing with them, really. We're making our points, and our points are different than theirs. But we are, we, it's, once I was with uh, one of Prabhupada's godbrothers, we used to know him as Dr. Kapoor, his initiated name was Adi Keshavadas. He passed away a few years ago. And um, he was living in Vrindavan, and, and when Prabhupada's mission began to manifest, and he opened the temple there, he, he came to help, and he wrote some articles. He wrote a very good book also for his doctorate thesis called The Religion and Philosophy of Sri Chaitanya. In fact, the best chapter in there, in the opinion of Bhakti Siddhanta, was his chapter on the Chinti Beda Beda Tattva where he describes Shankar, Ramanuja, Madhva, Nimbarka, Vishnu Swami, all of them in relation to Achinti Beta Beta. It's a pretty heady section, but if you want to get a grip on how the Gaudiya Sampradaya and the Achinti Beta Beta Tattva, which is drawn from Bhagavatam, from the trance of Vyasa, as Chijiva has shown in this Tattva Sandarbha, better and more naturally explain something that each of them are trying to say, but don't quite come out and say it as well. It's a very nice chapter. You should read that. A lot of philosophy of Sri Chaitanya. I have a couple copies. He, anyway, Dr. Kapoor, we were sitting with him, myself, and the Srinamaraj, and I think the Srinamaraj said that uh, we find that there are two prominent emphases 
in each of the four sampradayas. And Mahaprabhu has taken two from each, and therefore his sampradaya is more full. And then Dr. Kapoor, very nicely said, no, Mahaprabhu did not take anything. Each of them took only two from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. <laughs> from Mahaprabhu's complete doctrine. All those are emphasized in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's sampradaya. So, you know, these are, of course, sectarian and sentiments, feelings and sentiments with some subjectivity, but quite objectively speaking, if you, if you do a careful study of Mahaprabhu's metaphysics, his meta-narrative, his theology, his philosophy, you find improvements. And it, you would think that would be the case just in terms of his being the later commentator and having all of those commentaries just from an academic point to look at. Why would you write unless you thought you could add something new shed better light on it, bring it, out, bring it out more clearly, and so forth. In fact, he does. It's very clear, you can see, that his explanation is a more natural explanation of the sutras, and it's based on Srimad Bhagavatam. As the Kuru Purana says, and we heard last night, Arto Yam, there it is, Brahma Sutranam, Arto Yam Brahma Sutranam, the Arta, the meaning, the significance of the Brahma Sutras, that is found in Srimad Bhagavatam. The Gayatri Vasya Rupa also, also so the commentary on the Gayatri. I mean, this is big stuff. What does the Gayatri mean? What do the Brahma Sutras mean? It's all found in Srimad Bhagavatam. This is his position. And so, to review, at any rate, the, the first aphorism yesterday, what did we find? Atato Brahma Jignasu, the book. It's a, what's it about? The first four, by the way, sutras are all separate adhikarans as determined by all of the commentators. So, when they all have something in agreement, we think, well, that must be what Vyasa was really saying. So, they're all, but they're, they're, the four are very significant. They really help to define, you know, at the outset, what the book's about, what it's going to cover, and so forth. So, the first one, Tato Brahma Jigsasana. Now, therefore, inquiry about Brahman. So, you know, we heard from Srimad Bhagavatam, what is the significance of this now? Atta, 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 Ataha. Now, therefore, now means what? Now means that to inquire about Brahman, now, what is now, what is the time? The time is, or, or what is the eligibility? When can do, who can do that and when? What's their qualification? Well, this is, again, follow the, the Purvumi Mamsa, so uh, they're very well maybe connected to, to that, and for that matter, we see that people who pursue religion to its limit and get deeply involved want to go into experiential spiritual life and they see the deeper you go into it, the more futile you see is material pursuit. Even within traditions that largely encourage people to pray for material acquisition and so forth which our Hindu tradition, if you want to call it that, also does. There's a huge section for that, for praying for material benefits. That's all the karmakanda, that's all the purva mimamsa. But anyway, we see practically that the more you get into religion, which is what the Bhagavatam says, the more you go in the direction of liberation. So, I quoted from Bhagavatam, dharma sihi apavargasya. The goal of religious talk, of pursuing religion, has to come to liberation. This is where it's all going to, however indirectly it may seem, right? It may bring you in on one pretext or another to improve your life, make your life more happy with the, with the blessings of God and so forth, and the, 
but it involves then what acknowledgement, make some sacrifice in order to thereby honor the bounty of life and increase the bounty of life and so forth. But ultimately, through such pursuit, one becomes disenchanted with material acquisition. That's the normal course. And then there are those who seem to, without religious preoccupation, become disenchanted. Maybe they had a full religious preoccupation in their previous life. We don't necessarily know, but there are people who, without going through a serious examination of any religious doctrine or any body of revelation, just be, really become interested. Hmm? Whoever becomes materially a little exhausted and disenchanted with the prospect of material life, combined with what? With sadhusanga. Hmm? That person then becomes qualified. The conclusion is, therefore, that person now, who's arrived at this, either by, again, exhausting the pursuit themselves in the pursuit of religion, or somehow just becoming exhausted with the prospect of material gain, and getting good association. So we cited Bhagavatam there also. The gate, not seva. By getting that good association, then now you can systematically, you really become qualified to, to inquire about Brahman and the nature of that inquiry about Brahman is what? How do you inquire about Brahman? Well, Bhagavatam does two things in answering that in the first verse when it says, Satyam Param Dimahi. You're going to get close here. It's by meditation, hmm? by prayer. Meditation is a kind of a prayer. We brought prayer to, to Sankirtan yesterday by discussing the Dimahi in terms of it being plural, in terms of it being synonymous with Sankirtan. Gayatri, it implies a Gayatri. Gayatri, Ganatrayate, song of deliverance. Mahabharata's Kirtan is a song of deliverance. That's the flute sound of Krishna. He's answering to it with his Kirtan and so forth. Hmm? So this is how we make that inquiry. And in, in commenting the Bhagavatam, as it does in this way on the first sutra, it also leads us to what? Into a, a, on some understanding of the second sutra, in that it says, Satyam Param Dimahi, hmm? that the Brahma that's being described, the Brahma that's being described in that verse, Tene Brahma, Rudayadi Kobaye, it is Param Brahma. Hmm? And indeed, Again, the sutra that we come to tonight, Janmadiyasyataha, the second sutra, which seeks to describe this Brahman that we're supposed to inquire about, is explained eloquently and elaborately in the first stanza of Srimad Bhagavatam, which begins with what? Janmadiyasya. Janmadiyasya, the exact same words of Brahma Sutra. That's not a coincidence. The Bhagavatam's first verse is telling us what it's about. And it says, Janmadhyasyataha, and then it goes on. The sutra stops there. Janmadhyasyataha. And Vyasa thought, well, just write this. That's, it's basically like, we look at it like this. Vyasa's taking notes before he writes the Bhagavatam. <laughs> you, know, you want to write a few notes before you give the class, maybe, you know, what you're going to say. And word invokes this thought and that thought. So you just think of those words and then the whole paragraph that you've got to come out with, you know, comes forward. So he's taking notes. Janmadhyasyataha. Bullet points. Right, bullet points, yes. Yeah. So when he writes Janmadhyasyataha, then 
his mind goes anvayadi tadata chartesu vignasura dene brahmarada adikabe muyanti atsulaya tejo varimadam yatavinamayo yatati sarvo mashabdham nasena sala nirastam satyam param dhimahi and Jiva Goswami, of course, our Tattvacharya has shown in Paramatma Sandarbha and Krishna Sandarbha wonderful explanations of this first verse of Srimad Bhagavatam and how it explains the whole, what the whole book's about. And of course, the whole book is about Krishna, Radha and Krishna's Leela. And this is then the whole idea of the Brahman that we're supposed to inquire about that the second sutra seeks to define by saying that from whom? It says, from whom? It's a person from whom the whole world of people and places and things comes from. When it says Janmadi, it means the whole thing. Now, we've gone a little long here in our discussion, so tomorrow we'll go into that in a little bit, the first verse of the Bhagavatam and some of the, the explanation of Prabhupada, which is a standard explanation that is cited that is used in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Prophet's translation is whenever it's cited in Chaitanya Charitamrita, that explanation is what's being drawn upon. But Jiva Goswami has given some very nice, unique explanations as well, very, I mean, revealing and insightful. I'm not a Sanskritist, so I can't do justice to all of his explanations of why the words mean what they say, he, what he says they mean, but I can, I'll do the best I can, but we believe him that they do. He was a scholar in the language par... Excellence. Gantaraj Srimad Bhagavata Ki Jai. Any question? Yataha means whom? Of whom? Uh, it means uh, from whom? He says, Janmadi Asya Yataha. Asya means the world, the manifest world. Yeah. Yataha means of whom? From whom? From whom? The world has come into come into being, and what he must be like is—I mean, it's just common sense. <laughs> All this is, a, is very extraordinary. What he must be like, and that's what Srimad Bhagavatam, of course, tells us. Srimad Mahaprabhu Jai, Nityananda Anything else? So you can study up on these things. Suggested reading for tonight's course. Dr. Kapoor's chapter on the Chintya Beta Beta Tattva, quite heady, but the whole book is quite good. Actually, the book, incidentally, was used, and it was used also in a court case that he was in to defend the Gaudi Sampradaya at some point. Uh, and that chapter, anyway, on Chintya Beta Beta was a favorite of Bhakti Siddhanta. Of course, you can read the first verse of the Bhagavatam. You can look where it's found in Chaitanya Charitamrita if you have some research tool on your computer, like that uh, folio. Does anybody have that? You have it. You have it. You have it. You have a computer, and you have a computer, so you need it, right? It's, you know, and then you can look up everything. Is that the database? Database, yeah, all of Prophet's books, and they have, a, it's quite useful you know, for research. Haribo! Uh, what else did we discuss that would be for good for reading material? Do we, we touched on Tattvas and Dharva. I think that, well, Tattvas and Dharva, you can find some explanation of the first verse of Bhagavatam in relation to its being a commentary on, on um, Gayatri, I think, more than on the sutras. 
that comes in the Paramatma Sandarbha, which we don't have a printed copy of that. So, anyway, anything else? No. Okay. Vantara Srimad Bhagavat Ki Jai, Sivadarayan Ki Jai, Oh, Bhaktivinda Ki Jai, Oh, Ramanam Ki Jai.